You all are very brave to come to a lecture on Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he bookended his career with a six-hour speech at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and with a six-hour defense in a legal case in February of 1804. I will try not to go six hours on Hamilton, <laughs> but I was feeling the pains in trying to cut here toward the end of the preparation. Why in the world would a pastor like me care about Alexander Hamilton and work through these primary sources and Cherno's biography and all that? Well, uh, before I was a seminarian and a pastor, I chose political science as my major at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, and graduated from Furman in 2003 with a degree in political science. And I could not wait to get out of there and come to Bethlehem to study Greek and Hebrew and the Bible and learn to preach the Bible. So I have a political science background in college, and I'm very happy to weave in as much scriptural text as I can and bring this to you as a pastor here this evening. And in that light, let me pray for us. So, Father in heaven, in this fascinating and complicated life of Alexander Hamilton, Whatever his final destiny, we do not know for sure here. We don't want to pretend that we know that. And yet we have some interesting things to go on and consider here this evening. And we have lessons to learn for our own lives yet to be lived. And so would you grant your grace, even on this unusual and strange topic and theme that brings us together tonight. I do pray that far greater than Alexander Hamilton, that Jesus Christ would be exalted. Hamilton, in the details of his life, will be humbled. And I pray that in your tender mercy, Father, Christ would be magnified in rehearsing as Christians this story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in July of 1741, a 37-year-old Jonathan Edwards grabbed a sermon he'd already preached in Northampton and took it with him to a town called Enfield. There, it was, quote, attended with remarkable impressions on many of the hearers. Edwards, as you may know, spoke of sinners in the hands of an angry God and grace to those who are in Christ. That last part gets left out in the textbook sometimes in a message that would come to represent the first great awakening. What are we, asked Edwards, that we should think to stand before him, at, who, at whose rebuke the earth trembles, and before whom the rocks are thrown down? Thirty years later, the spirit of Jonathan Edwards was alive and well, yet in a most unlikely place and through a most unlikely pen. In August of 1772, a hurricane that was described as one of the most dreadful that memory or any records whatever can trace swept through the Caribbean, and in particular the island of St. Croix. The fury, it's reported, came at dusk and raged violently till 10 o'clock, and then followed the eye a sudden and unexpected interval which lasted about an hour. And finally came four more hours of redoubled fury till near three o'clock in the morning. A few days later, after the hearing of a Sunday sermon, a youth of the island, 17 years old, composed a letter for his derelict father living on another island. And in the letter, that youth said, it seemed as if a total dissolution of nature was taking place. In a word, misery, in all its most hideous shapes, spread over the whole face of the country. But this rare teen, in Edwards-like fashion, saw more here than natural causation in the hurricane. He said, 
that which in a calm, unruffled temper we call a natural cause seemed like the correction of the deity. It was no accident that this youth named Alexander Hamilton would take up such a perspective on the hurricane. Earlier that year, a Princeton grad and pastor named Hugh Knox had arrived on the island, discovered this precocious orphan, and begun to serve as a spiritual father for him. In the 1750s, Knox had been a student and good friend of Aaron Burr Sr., founder and second president of a college at Princeton, New Jersey. Burr had married Esther Edwards, Jonathan's third child of 11. And Burr himself greatly admired Edwards. Knox admired Burr, and almost certainly Edwards as well. Now the young Hamilton sat at the feet of Knox on September 6, 1772, as Knox preached on the hurricane. And later that day, the young Hamilton, imbibing the Calvinist theology, set to compose his now famous hurricane letter to his father. Doubtless, the first time Hamilton would have heard the name Aaron Burr is from the lips of Hugh Knox, speaking about the father rather than the son. Burr Sr. died in 1757, just a year after the birth of his son. And as you may know, Edwards then became the third president of Princeton, and he would have raised his grandson, Burr Jr., had he not died of a botched smallpox inoculation the following year, 1758. In the fall of 1772, Knox was so impressed with Hamilton's hurricane letter that he steered it to the local paper. It was published in the subsequent weeks, and it became the occasion for raising funds to send this gifted youth of the island to the mainland in hopes that he would study, as Knox had, at this college in Princeton, New Jersey. So what did the 17-year-old Hamilton write? The hurricane had thundered, he claimed. Despise thyself and adore thy God. Yet, Hamilton in his Christian faith found refuge. He said, See thy wretched, helpless state and learn to know thyself. Learn to know thy best support. Despise thyself and adore thy God. What have I to dread? My staff can never be broken. In omnipotence, I trust it in that hurricane. He who gave the winds to blow and the lightnings to rage, even him have I loved and served. His precepts I have observed, his commandments I have obeyed, and his perfections I have adored. He will snatch me from ruin. And he will exalt me to the fellowship of angels and seraphs and to the fullness of never-ending joys. The young Hamilton then exhorts his readers, O vain mortal, check thy ill-timed joy. And then he ends with, O Lord, help. Jesus, be merciful. That same year, Hamilton composed a Christian hymn as well. And it was a hymn that his future wife, Eliza, would come to prize and cling to in the half century that she outlived him. In the hymn, Hamilton confessed, O Lamb of God, thrice gracious Lord, now, now I feel how true thy word. And yet this early Hamilton is not the one that we know and remember today, nor the one celebrated in the award-winning musical, which Lin-Manuel Miranda spent seven years writing from 2008 until its debut off-Broadway in 2015. What Hamilton is perhaps most famous for is the circumstances of his death in a so-called affair of honor. In the summer of 1804, Hamilton took a duel with Edward's grandson, Burr Jr., who was the sitting vice president of the United States under Thomas Jefferson. Strangely enough, 
Citing Christian conviction, Hamilton threw away his shot by not firing upon his opponent. Burr, however, took aim and struck his rival. And Hamilton died 31 hours later on July 12th, 1804. Remarkably, in 2004, Ron Chernow's 800-page biography... Anybody here read that? Okay, I got some Cherno quotes for you. In the summer of 2004, I was taking Hebrew for the first time here at Bethlehem Baptist. And I needed something to do with my mind other than Hebrew that summer. I think this was before I was using Amazon. I found this Hamilton biography on the shelf at a Barnes & Noble and read it in the summer of 2004. I thought maybe this political science degree won't be for naught. I'll try to brush up on something, learn a little bit more about Hamilton. The 2004 biography began the work of doing justice to Hamilton's memory in the 21st century. I think he was well remembered in the 19th, the earliest 20th century, and about the time of FDR, there was a moving forward of Jefferson and a backgrounding of Hamilton uh, in a way that continued till recently. More than a decade later, Miranda's musical, inspired by the biography, with Cherno serving as historical consultant, sent Hamilton skyrocketing back into American awareness, as you know, and just in time to save his face on the $10 bill. They were, they were about to get rid of it. But thank you, Miranda. Of our interest here tonight, Hamilton seems to have experienced a Christian conversion under-reformed, and even Edwardsian teaching when the Great Awakening came to the West Indies in the early 1770s. Yet, from a Christian perspective, Hamilton's story is complicated, to say the least. In his late teens, he professed faith, as we've heard. He wrote hymns and commentaries on biblical books. He knelt daily to pray. In his youthful zeal, however, to rise above his station... And in his ascent to political prominence, he became a prodigal. None rose so fast and fell so far as Alexander Hamilton. But when he was finally humbled, neither Cherno nor Miranda can ignore what Cherno calls his late flowering religious interests. In this complex life of Hamilton, Douglas Adair and Marvin Harvey, writing in 1955, identified four distinct stages in the spiritual development of Alexander Hamilton. Here they are. This will, this will be a structure for tonight. Number one, his early piety. Second, a 15-year period of, they call it, complete religious indifference. Third, his opportunistic religiosity in the 1790s. And then finally, his final season, when he began sincerely seeking God in this time of failure and suffering. Jesus told a parable in Luke 15 about a youth who left home for a far country and squandered his life in reckless living and eventually realized the world would not satisfy. In time, the young man came to himself, Jesus says, and returned home to the arms of his father. Whether there was a celebration in heaven on July 12th, 1804, I cannot tell you with certainty. But I want you to hear the rest of the story. So far as we can tell, as we weave together Jesus' parable of the prodigal with Adair and Harvey's four distinct stages in the life and spiritual development of Alexander Hamilton. A challenge here is that Hamilton's life will look very different to a political scientist and a Christian pastor. I'm a pastor. Without doing 
injustice to Hamilton as a statesman, I want to draw out with special emphasis the often muted part of the story about Hamilton's prodigal journey and his late flowering faith. So number one, his early piety. And this is from 1772 with the hurricane to 1777 when he's exalted to Washington's right hand. The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. Luke 15, 13. Hamilton was born in 1755 on the island of Nevis. And due to his mother's previous marriage and alleged infidelity, his parents were not legally married. He had an older brother, and his father abandoned the family when Hamilton was 10. Two years later, his mother died of yellow fever. Hamilton also had the fever, but recovered. Orphaned, Alexander and his brother went to live with a cousin who soon thereafter committed suicide. At age 14, he went to work as a clerk for an importer-exporter on the island of St. Croix and excelled in the work. They could leave this teen in charge when they left for months. In 1772, Hugh Knox arrived on the island and took an interest in Hamilton. After the publication of the Hamilton Hurricane Letter, he came to New Jersey hoping to enroll at Princeton he proposed an abbreviated course of study to the president of Princeton, then called John Witherspoon, and Witherspoon denied his request. Interestingly, recently, a student named James Madison had completed a two-year fast track at Princeton and worked himself into a nervous breakdown. So perhaps Witherspoon had Madison in mind when he declined Hamilton's request. Undeterred, Hamilton took his skills to King's College in New York and he was approved there and began classes in the fall of 1773. But even that summer, before starting college, he made his first public speech in the cause of this emerging revolution. His college roommate named Robert Troop, lifelong friend, remembered Hamilton's, quote, habit of praying upon his knees both night and morning and that he was a zealous believer in the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. However, Hamilton's physical and social journey into the far country soon led to a spiritual pilgrimage, or better, spiritual lethargy and distraction, as the revolutionary spirit was fomenting in New York and began to draw forcefully upon his energies. However devout he may have been upon arrival, his unusually able brain and pen were soon captured by the feverish, feverish attention of the day. Rather than Christian Jeremiads and hymns, his attention turned to the revolution. Ashbel Green, who would eventually serve as the eighth president of Princeton, reflected back on those pre-war days in the British colonies and said this, The military spirit that pervaded the whole land was exceedingly unfriendly to vital piety among all descriptions of the citizens. And he said this was especially so at the colleges, as you might imagine. He says, military enthusiasm had seized the minds of the students to such a degree that they could think of little else than warlike operations. By the time the cloud of war had passed over, the colleges were more enamored of deism and the French Revolution's cult of the supreme being than of orthodox piety. And so Hamilton, too, alongside his fellow collegiates, was swept into what was trending, into the talk of the cultural moment. And he had manifest abilities, skilled with words, 
brave enough for battle, a natural leader on the field. And so his revolutionary success quickly pulled him into the heart of the American cause and its politics from 1775 to 1800. Perhaps he is only surpassed by Washington in that quarter century in terms of influence. His Christian interests, however, cooled as they were eclipsed by political ambition and his work as Washington's aide-de-camp, and then in establishing a law practice in New York, and climactically as the nation's first Secretary of the Treasury in 1789 to 1795. Alongside Madison, this young Hamilton would prove to be one of the great intellects of the founding generation. And while every bit Madison's match in political thought, if not exceeding him, he far, I almost can't say that enough, far surpassed Madison and the other leading founders in economics. So his early piety. Number two, 15 years of indifference. This is from 1777 to 1792. There in the far country, he squandered his property in reckless living. Luke 15, 13. Adair and Harvey call this the 15-year period of complete religious indifference, when politically, Hamilton shot up like a rocket. His wordsmithing and his courage had propelled him to revolutionary leadership. In 1777, he was promoted to Washington's side. Now 22 years old, he would be Washington's right-hand man during the Revolution. And then later, under the new Constitution, he would be the first Secretary of the Treasury. And then he would essentially function under Washington as the Prime Minister and occupy the most powerful seat in the first Executive Administration. As we were learning about Hamilton, one time my boys asked me, uh, was Hamilton ever president? I said, yes <laughs> and no, not officially. Hamilton's long-standing relationship with Washington proved to be a stabilizing force, at least in public life. In hindsight, Hamilton's most productive and least self-destructive work came when he was most proximate to Washington. It's a good lesson. There are, there are people who can be stabilizing forces in our lives. But it was not only Washington whose guidance was political, but also Eliza, whose influence was gently and relentlessly spiritual. He married her in 1780. She was, even then, what we would call an evangelical Christian today. And she became only more so as she aged. As a woman of deep spirituality, Eliza believed in Christian instruction for their eight children. And it would prove to have effects on her husband as they raised him together. And particularly as his great humblings came later. She endured his wandering. And in the end, may have won him with her life and conduct. Hamilton was there at the Battle of Yorktown in 1781, leading a battalion with distinction. And after the war, his ascending career seemed nonstop from 1783 to 1789. In 1782, he was appointed to Congress from New York under the Articles of Confederation. Here, he would see firsthand how weak and inadequate they were for a league of 13 states. In 1783, he resigned from Congress to establish a law practice in New York. In 1786, he's the one who penned the letter calling delegates to a convention in Philadelphia for the summer of 1787. He also attended this constitutional convention where he gave that six-hour speech. And the following year, organized and edited the Federalist Papers partnering with Madison and John Jay to persuade New Yorkers to ratify the new Constitution. Under Hamilton's lead from 1789 to 1795, 
the Treasury Department drove the new government. He grew the department to more than 500 employees, while the War Department had a dozen and Jefferson State Department had half a dozen. And yet it was in this rapid rise, in his shooting up like a rocket, that the cracks began to show. And in particular, in 1791, in the adultery that Cherno calls one of history's most mystifying cases of a bad judgment. It would be whispered in private rooms until 1797 and then proclaimed from rooftops. I'll come back to that in the next section. Third then, his opportunistic religiosity. 1792 to 1800. His opportunistic religiosity. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Luke 15, 14 to 16. Washington began his second term in 1793. In January of that year, France's Louis XVI was executed. By June, the Committee of Public Safety came to power in Paris and began its reign of terror. France became the unceasing controversy of Washington's second term and drove party divisions deeper than they had been between Hamilton and Jefferson. Jefferson soon resigned. With the furor over the French Revolution came fresh atheistic fears among many faithful Christians. Hamilton saw the pro-French Jeffersonians exposed. And he, and he attempted to enlist God in the Federalist Party to buttress his party's temporal power, writes Adair and Harvey. Unfortunately, they continue, Hamilton's blasphemous attempts to use God for his all-too-human ends were extremely successful with large numbers of the clergy. I hear that about my own profession. Actually, they continue, it is during these years when religious slogans were so often on his lips that Hamilton seems farther from God and from any understanding of his son Jesus Christ than at any time in his whole career. Like Jefferson, Hamilton was eventually worn down by the political libel and the public slander. And if you think Twitter's bad right now, just check out the newspapers from the 1790s. It has been worse. Societies go through cycles. In debt, and with a growing family at home, he decided to return to New York in 1795. And in this season, he's in his early 40s, he would experience the beginning of his many humblings. The Adams administration, beginning in 1797, would bring mounting frustrations, both for Hamilton and Hamilton big time for Adams. Hamilton began to make several terrible judgment calls. Hamilton and Adams drew the worst out of each other. It's supposed to be in the same party, the two leaders of the same party. In October of 1799, Adams broke with his cabinet and with Hamilton to send an envoy to France, and in the wake of that came what Chernow calls a total loss of perspective by Hamilton, the nadir of his judgment. The dominoes began to fall, and Hamilton with them. In December of 1799, Washington died, his surrogate father. By February 1801, oh, oh my, Please don't, don't talk to me right now. <laughs> he never had to deal with that. By February 1801, it became clear, sorry, fe fe this is February 1800. By February 1800, it became clear that the Federalist Party 
was turning from Hamilton to Adams. Then by the end of April, Aaron Burr and his opposing coalition won control of New York. In a matter of months, Hamilton's political power and influence crumbled. To top it all off, in the election of 1800, his old cabinet rival, Thomas Jefferson, won the presidency. And with his other rival, Aaron Burr, as vice president. As Adams, as Adair and Harvey write, perhaps never in all American political history has there been a fall from power so rapid, so complete, so final as Hamilton's in the period from October 1799 to November 1800. And all this is just 18 months after the papers got a hold of his six-year-old secret, the adultery of 1791. Hamilton, in hoping to protect his sterling financial reputation, published a painfully long and detailed pamphlet confessing his marital infidelity. He plainly did not know when to stop talking at the Constitutional Convention, and later, all the time. His finances may have been in order, but his soul was not. From a Christian perspective, Hamilton's adultery appears as his most glaring flaw, even more obviously and unqualifiedly than the duel. His adultery showed how far his heart had wandered and reminds us of the delusion of power and success. We can indeed be our most vulnerable when we feel ourselves to be our strongest. There was once a king in Israel who, as a prelude to infidelity, remained in the city while others went to war. And so too Hamilton, at the height of his power in 1791, and with so much work to do, stayed in Philadelphia while his family summered upstate. That summer, a 23-year-old woman approached him, telling of an abusive husband and asking for help. His extended public confession in 1797 would be only the first of several instances about which Chernow, even as the cool-headed biographer and measured admirer of Hamilton, appears stunned by Hamilton's folly. He says, Such stellar success might have bred an intoxicating sense of invincibility. But his vigorous reign had also made him the enfant terrible of the early republic, and a substantial minority of the country was mobilized against him. This should have made him especially watchful of his reputation. Instead, in one of history's most mystifying cases of bad judgment, he entered into a sordid affair with a married woman named Mariah Reynolds that if it did not blacken his name forever, certainly sullied it. From the lofty heights of statesmanship, Hamilton fell back into something reminiscent of the squalid world of his West Indian boyhood, says Chernow. Yet even with the Reynolds affair made public, devastating as that was, it was still another 18 months before Hamilton began to utterly crumble. So fourth and finally, his final season, where he began sincerely seeking God in his time of failure and suffering. And this is about 1800 to 1804, about a four-year period. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. 
Luke 15, 17 to 20. One great irony of Hamilton's story and a caution for us today is that when he was at his best politically, he was at his worst in relation to Jesus. And yet, when he was humbled and turned again to Jesus, he was often at his worst politically. More terrible judgments followed the Reynolds pamphlet. Even as late as the spring of 1802, he wrote a letter to fellow Federalist James Bayard proposing what he called a Christian constitutional society. Now, I suspect this to be a genuine, though terribly naive, expression of his renewed Christian faith. It may also be one last gasp of his 1790s opportunism. To counter Jefferson's French-friendly democratic societies, Hamilton proposed a new society that would exist to, number one, promote the Christian religion, and number two, the Constitution of the United States. He saw both to be under Jeffersonian threat, but his Federalist interests were clearly political. At least they were politically expedient. He uses the word expedient. By signing up God against Thomas Jefferson, says Chernow, Hamilton hoped to make a more potent political appeal. Hamilton was not honoring religion, but exploiting it for political ends. That's Chernow's interpretation. However misguided the effort, Chernow can't help but recognize in this season, it is striking how religion preoccupied Hamilton during his final years. In November of 1801, the most devastating domino finally fell. His eldest child, Philip, age 19, died in a duel defending his father's honor. Learning of the duel, Hamilton had advised his son to take the righteous course and throw away his shot. That is, shoot into the air. But his son's opponent did not. And this would prove to be Alexander's greatest devastation. Soon he would write to a friend that Philip's death was, beyond comparison, the most afflicting of my life. And yet by late 1801, Hamilton was plainly taking deep solace in Christianity and Philip's profession of faith. He says, it was the will of heaven. And Philip is now out of reach of the seductions and calamities of a world full of folly, full of vice, full of danger, of least value in proportion as it is best known. I firmly trust also that he has safely reached the haven of eternal repose and felicity. While the sufferings and frustrations resulting from political failure started Hamilton's religious conversion, claim Adair and Harvey, it was this terrible personal tragedy that crystallized the change. They say, his plenitude of sorrow accounts for a totally new note. The first echo in all his writings of thy will be done. His writings are voluminous. Here's the first echo. Now appears in certain Hamilton letters. And they say the old Hamilton arrogance had disappeared. Hamilton's spiritual renewal in this last season is too pronounced to ignore, whether in a first-rate biography or on Broadway. His reawakening appears to have just preceded and prepared him for Philip's death, even if Miranda captures it in the aftermath of his loss in that culminating song, Quiet Uptown. And there Hamilton sings, 
I take the children to church on Sunday, a sign of the cross at the door, and I pray. That never used to happen before. And what may be a grace too powerful to name on Broadway is precisely the name that we in the church know as powerful. And we name the name Jesus. In July of 1804, on the night before his own deadly duel, he wrote this to his wife, Eliza. This letter, my very dear Eliza, will not be delivered, delivered to you unless I shall first have terminated my earthly career to begin, as I humbly hope, from redeeming grace and divine mercy, a happy immortality. The consolations of Christianity, my beloved, can alone support you, and these you have a right to enjoy. Fly to the bosom of your God and be comforted. With my last idea, I shall cherish the sweet hope of meeting you in a better world. Adieu, best of wives and best of women. And so we ask, why a duel? Just three years prior, he had lost his firstborn son to a duel. On multiple occasions, he had publicly expressed his disavowal of duels. How could he permit this? And especially now, as a professing Christian. I'll leave my speculations to the Q&A. And let Oliver Wolcott Jr., who was Hamilton's successor as the Secretary of the Treasury, express his sense of the senselessness of it. On the day of the duel, Wolcott wrote to his wife that General Hamilton reasoned himself into a belief that though the custom of dueling was in the highest degree criminal, yet there were peculiar reasons which rendered it proper for him to expose himself to Colonel Burr in particular. This instance, he says, of the derangement of intellect of a great mind on a single point has often been noticed as one of the most common yet unaccountable frailties of human nature. And Wolcott added at the end of his letter, General Hamilton has of late years expressed his conviction of the truths of the Christian religion. However tragic and ill-conceived his decision to row across the river to Weehawken, New Jersey, to the dueling grounds, that would not be the place of his death. Hamilton did throw away his shot while Burr's bullet struck him in the liver and lodged in his spine. Hamilton seemed dead on sight, and they got him out on the water, and he was revived as they were rolling back to New York. So he lived another 31 hours and died at 2 p.m. the next day. Hamilton's professions of faith on his deathbed are by no means the only indications of his Christian faith. But they are the clearest, and they are the most documented. I'm going to finish with those. First, he called for Benjamin Moore, Episcopal Bishop of New York and President of Columbia College, formerly King's College, his school. He asked to receive the Lord's Supper. Hamilton was not a church member. So Moore hesitated to administer the sacrament. He would come back and do it later. In the moments that followed, Moore asked him this. I quote, Do you sincerely repent of your past sins? Have you a lively faith in God's mercy through Christ with a thankful remembrance of the death of Christ? And are you disposed to live in love and charity with all men? According to Moore, who published his reflections a few days later, Hamilton lifted up his hands and said with the utmost sincerity of heart, I can answer those questions in the affirmative. I have no ill will against Colonel Burr. I met him with a fixed resolution to do him no harm. 
I forgive all that happened. Moore says he had no reason to doubt Hamilton's sincerity. A second minister often also visited Hamilton on his deathbed. And that was his old friend, the Reverend John M. Mason, who was pastor of the Scotch Presbyterian Church. Mason said that he said to Hamilton, he had nothing to address him in his affliction but that same gospel of grace which it is my office to preach to the most obscure and illiterate. That in the sight of God, all men are on a level. And as all men have sinned and come short of his glory and that they must apply to him for pardon and life as sinners whose only refuge is his grace by righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hamilton responded, I perceive it to be so. I am a sinner. I look to his mercy. Mason then turned his attention to, he says, the infinite merit of the Redeemer as the propitiation for sin, the sole ground of our acceptance with God, the sole channel of His favor to us. And he cited the following passages of Scripture, which pastors, aspiring pastors, what passages you got ready. It's one thing to profess faith when life is good, when you're in severe pain on the deathbed. Are we ready to help our people? And so Mason said, There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. Acts 4.12 And he said, He is able to save them to the uttermost who come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 The blood of Jesus cleanseth from all sin. 1 John 1.7 Mason reminded him that the precious blood of Christ was as effectual and as necessary to wash away the transgression which had involved him in suffering, the duel, as any other transgression, and that he must there and there alone seek peace for his conscience in Christ. Mason says, that Hamilton assented with strong emotions to these representations and declared his abhorrence of the whole transaction. Mason then recurred to the topic of divine compassions, the freedom of pardon in the Redeemer Jesus to perishing sinners. That grace, my dear General, which brings salvation is rich, rich. Yes, Hamilton interrupted. It is rich grace. And on that grace, continued Mason, a sinner has the highest encouragement to repose his confidence because it is tendered to him upon the surest foundation. The scripture testifying that we have redemption through the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.7. He had his passages ready. At this point... He says, Hamilton looked upwards and said with emphasis, I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mason's narrative continues with more scripture, further affirmations from Hamilton. But finally, he writes, as I was retiring, Hamilton lifted up his hands in the attitude of prayer and said feebly, God be merciful to his voice sunk so that I heard not the rest distinctly but understood him to quote the words of the publican in the gospel and to end with me a sinner clearly Hamilton's late life return to his early faith and his deathbed confessions raise questions as Christians, many of us feel both the relief and the uneasiness of the whole scene. That Hamilton never joined a church is troubling. Not many thieves on the cross have God as their father, but not the church as their mother. That is sobering. Maybe he was an exception. 
And those of us who grieve his long, tragic journey into the far country of political success and pride want to redouble our efforts to resolve now to live for what really matters eternally and welcome God's humbling hand if we find ourselves to have strayed. And lest Hamilton's late-life Christian faith contribute to a distorted impression of the nation's founding, we are wise to concede that this, meager as it is, may be one of the clearest affirmations of evangelical faith among the inner circle of the founders. You will not find such in Franklin or Washington or Adams or Jefferson or Madison. And one exception is John Jay. This is not to make much of Hamilton's reticence and late flowering faith, but to own how unevangelical the founding was. Hamilton's political career is a warning to those today who pine to be in the room where it happens. Hamilton was there. It did not satisfy. For him, it led to the eroding and near ruin of what mattered most. And so his life is a cautionary tale. Hamilton's succession of humblings and his late flowering Christian faith show us a man who rose to the top and was not satisfied with what this world has on offer. Military achievement and fame, political influence and position, success as a lawyer, an adoring wife, eight children. His heart remained restless until through much of his own sin and folly, he fell headlong. But in his great humblings, he did seem to come to himself and find rest in the Savior in whom he professed faith in his youth. For years, Hamilton's life looked to Christian eyes like the third soil, choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, Luke 8, 14. But in his final season, and particularly in his clear final confessions, he professed tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty through the merits of Jesus Christ. May we too not only depart, but live now with such a reliance. And may, observing Hamilton's follies, we be spared of some of our own. Thank you.